You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 214, A Proposal to Arm Slaves. In the spring of 1779, the southern colonies were under threat. Britain had deployed thousands of regulars to take back Georgia. They invaded Savannah in December 1778 with relative ease, and after the Battle of Briar Creek that I discussed last week, seemed to have a colony that was back under their control. The British force under General Augustine Prevost had already begun probing into South Carolina, with that being the next obvious step. The British then hoped to build on their success to take back North Carolina and possibly even Virginia. British leaders believed that the southern colonies, largely settled by the descendants of aristocratic families, would be most amenable to a return to British rule and would be the most likely source of Tory militia armies to support the regulars. Opposing the British was a small force of Continentals under the command of General Benjamin Lincoln, who had taken up command at Perrysburg, South Carolina, just a few miles upriver from British-occupied Savannah. Supplementing the Continental soldiers were thousands of militia from Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia. Although many of the North Carolina regiments had disappeared after their defeat at Briar Creek. The militia that had turned out to support Lincoln had proven disappointing. They were not well trained or disciplined. Their officers were unwilling to take orders from General Lincoln or other Continental officers. You also have to remember that South Carolina's white population was not particularly large. The white population in the state was probably between 70 and 80,000 people at this time, giving an estimated white male fighting age population of perhaps 20,000. Of those, a fair percentage may have been loyalists who were more willing to join the British Army than oppose them. South Carolina also had a slave population of nearly 100,000. It was the only state in America where blacks outnumbered whites. Much of the role of the South Carolina militia was to deter a slave rebellion and capture escaping slaves. British leaders had already hatched plans to arm colonial slaves and offer them their freedom in exchange for helping to defeat their former masters. South Carolina leaders had to maintain control of the slave population at this vulnerable time. Therefore, they simply could not let all the young white men of fighting age march off to fight with the Continentals. In early 1779, Congress gave tentative approval to raise and equip an army of several thousand southern slaves. This was a really big step, and I think it helps show the evolution in thinking that had taken place over several years of war. Remember, back in 1775, when the Continental Army first developed out of the New England Army that had sprouted up around Boston, many units at that time did have small numbers of free black men integrated into their units. And yet when General George Washington took command, he ordered that only white men be enlisted. Congress also passed several resolutions barring black men, or as they were called at the time, Negroes, from enlisting in the Continental Army. Black men could be used as laborers, of course, 
but they were not to carry guns. But almost immediately after issuing these rules, Washington and many members of Congress began to backtrack. Very quickly, free black men were permitted to re-enlist, and other recruits were permitted to enlist quietly, while leaders continued to debate and rethink their policy of whites only. Part of this may have been pushback from some New England officers who had black soldiers in their units and believed them to be valuable assets. A more likely motivation was that it was simply a matter of desperation. The Continental Army simply could not recruit the numbers that it wanted. Black recruits, it seemed, were better than no recruits. The Continental Army did not have segregated units. Black soldiers served alongside their white comrades in integrated units. However, there were no black officers. All black soldiers served under white leadership. Of course, over the years, General Washington and the other leaders who held prejudiced views that black men could never fight with the same discipline and bravery as white men saw those prejudices challenged as black soldiers fought with distinction, fighting and dying as well as any other men. Beyond the issue of free blacks, there was an additional controversy of allowing slaves to enlist. Now, even if leaders were beginning to overcome their prevailing racist notions that black people were inferior to white people in fighting ability, slaves as soldiers posed other very real concerns. One was that slave owners might object to the emancipation of the slaves. Another was that slaves might harbor an anger and resentment that would result in their deserting and fighting for the enemy if given the opportunity. Another was simply that slaves were simply raised to be ignorant and servile, which could impact their fighting ability, even if free blacks made capable soldiers. And of course, all of this is assuming that slaves would gain their freedom as a result of fighting, otherwise teaching a slave to use firearms and then sending him back to have to serve under a family that he might resent could result in some future encounter that would not end well for the master. The first state to test these concerns on any significant scale was Rhode Island. In February of 1778, it had passed the Slave Enlistment Act, which permitted slaves to enlist in the Continental Army. Upon doing so, the slaves would immediately become free. Their masters would be paid reasonable compensation for the value of their loss. Upon completing enlistment, the former slave would have the full rights of a free man. The immediate purpose in doing so was to reconstitute the 1st Rhode Island Regiment of the Continental Army. Colonel Christopher Green, who had led the 1st Rhode Island at Fort Mercer in the fall of 1777, saw his regiment dissolving over the winter as enlistments expired. This was that bleak winter at Valley Forge. It's also seen as the time that the pre-war idealism faded. The notion that a free citizenry would nobly volunteer to defend their lands in the militia when called, then return to their farms after successfully deflecting any invasion, had proven to provide only an unstable and inexperienced army. Washington led many others in the view that citizen militias and even short-term continental enlistments simply would not get the job done against British regulars. Washington had really decided that he needed to have a professional army that would serve at least multi-year enlistments so that the soldiers would benefit from training and experience. 
Now, the problem with multi-year enlistments, especially for an army that was gaining a reputation for not properly feeding, clothing, and housing its soldiers, was that many men with other options were not willing to make that commitment. Some hardcore patriots were, of course, willing, but not in the numbers that the army needed. Opening the ranks to black soldiers, including slaves, definitely increased that available pool and opened it up to men who may not have quite as many options in civilian life. Men held in slavery, of course, had a particular incentive to join if there was an offer of freedom after completing their enlistment. So Rhode Island heavily recruited slaves and some free blacks to fill the ranks of the 1st Rhode Island. Up until the end of 1777, the regiment had a mix of black and white soldiers. Following the recruitment drive in early 1778, the regiment was largely made up of black privates with white officers and non-commissioned officers to lead them. And at that point, it really became known as the Black Regiment. Later that year, at the Battle of Rhode Island, the regiment acquitted itself well on Aquidneck Island, drawing praise from the commanding officer, General Sullivan. It helped convince even more continental leaders that black soldiers could be effective fighters in battle. One of the more conspicuous advocates of arming slaves was Colonel John Lawrence. As an aide to General Washington, Lawrence had the ear of the commander. He also had the ear of the President of Congress, his father, Henry Lawrence. Colonel Lawrence also developed a close friendship with Colonel Alexander Hamilton and General the Marquis de Lafayette. The three young men were all in their early 20s, highly educated, and enthusiastic supporters of the cause of freedom. The three young men, Lawrence, Hamilton, and Lafayette, also all seemed to be enthusiastic proponents for ending slavery. Some people looking back on this today may see this as hypocritical, since Lawrence came from a slave-owning family. His father, Henry Lawrence, not only owned slaves, but made a fortune running the largest slave-trading house in North America. In 1771, when John was just a teenager, his mother died. His father took the family to England, and John ended up spending several years in a Swiss boarding school. When the war began, he was studying law in London. His father, who had already returned to America, urged John to stay in London and continue his studies. Now, John stayed in England through 1776, at which time he married an Englishwoman, and yet despite his father's wishes, he wanted to come and fight for the Patriots. So by the spring of 1777, he sailed back to America and received a commission in the Continental Army. The elder Henry Lawrence wanted to keep his son away from the dangers of combat and arranged for him to serve as an aide-de-camp to General Washington. John, however, had no interest in spending the war behind a desk. He was conspicuously active on the battlefield at Brandywine. His friend Lafayette commented, quote, It was not his fault that he was not killed or wounded. He did everything that was necessary to procure one or t'other. Lawrence remained active in the field during the Philadelphia campaign before he was finally wounded at Germantown. Lawrence recuperated from his shoulder wound at Valley Forge. He then fought at Monmouth, and later in 1778 fought a duel with General Charles Lee. John Lawrence's father, Henry Lawrence, had views on slavery that are probably best described as complicated. Biographers of the Lawrence family, and even people in letters from the time, 
noted that Henry Lawrence appreciated the humanity of the people who he owned. They note that he treated his slaves much better than his fellow South Carolina owners, not driving them as hard or punishing them as brutally, and he had a reluctance to break up slave families whenever possible. Now, some may argue that noting this lenient treatment is somehow an attempt to excuse or mitigate the judgment against Lawrence for having owned slaves. I'm not pointing this out for any such reason, and in fact leave it to others to judge the man. I'm simply trying to point out that, despite being an owner of a large number of slaves, Lawrence did feel conflicted about the institution and did have some feelings for those who labored for him. He did not view Africans as animals or as somehow subhumans who needed enslavement to fit into a civilized society. At the same time, though, he continued to hold people in bondage and force their continued labor for his own benefit. If the father, Henry Lawrence, felt conflicted between his life as a slave owner and his ideals about freedom and equality, his son John seemed less conflicted. Having reached adulthood in Europe, where slavery was not a part of society, John seemed much more ready to find a way to end the institution. Despite his views, Henry Lawrence remained a large slave owner. As early as 1776, he wrote to his son about the idea of manumitting his slaves. The father and son discuss ways to transition from a slave-based economy to one based on the ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence. They were not ready for some radical scheme to end slavery instantly, nor were they willing to grant immediate manumission even to their own slaves. But the men were thinking about how to transition society in that direction. By early 1779, John Lawrence saw an opportunity both to aid the patriot cause and also to further the goal of finding a way to end slavery. Lawrence had long proposed the idea of raising a regiment, or even several regiments, of slaves who would be offered freedom in exchange for military service. He had even written to his father in early 1778, around the same time the first Rhode Island was being raised with slaves, asking if he could borrow against his future inheritance by being given 40 slaves. These men would establish a company of soldiers, which would serve as the larger core of a military force composed of former slaves. At the time, Henry objected to the plan on several levels. He assumed that his slaves would be too afraid to leave the plantation and leave their families behind. They would also desert at the earliest opportunity, either out of fear of battle or the desire to escape bondage. He disagreed with his son that the slaves would rise to the occasion and win their freedom honorably by serving out their enlistments. For the rest of the year, the idea simply remained that, an idea, with no attempts to implement it anywhere in the South. In early 1779, though, as I said, the British had captured Savannah and were threatening South Carolina. John Lawrence obtained leave from Washington to return to South Carolina. On the way, Lawrence stopped in Philadelphia to advocate for his idea to raise an army of South Carolina slaves. This army would contest the British threat to South Carolina. Owners would receive compensation, and slaves would become free following the completion of their enlistment. Now, given the threats against South Carolina at the time, Henry Lawrence and others in Congress took the suggestion more seriously. South Carolina President John Rutledge had sent Isaac Huger to Philadelphia to try to get Congress to help with a military force in the South. 
On January 9, 1779, Congress had commissioned Colonel Huger of the South Carolina Militia to become a Continental Brigadier. That same day, the Congress also commissioned two North Carolina officers, Sumner and Hogan, as well as Mordecai Gist of Maryland. The new brigadiers were part of an effort to raise the military force needed to protect the southern states. General Huger hoped to get Congress to send portions of the Continental Army and Navy to defend South Carolina in its hour of need. Congress formed a committee, including Henry Lawrence, who by this time was no longer president of Congress, but still a delegate, as well as Henry Drayton, also of South Carolina, to work out a solution to save South Carolina. Huger reported that raising an army of white militia members was difficult because so many had to remain at home to protect against a slave insurrection or to protect against the fear that slaves would escape to the enemy and fight for the British. Congress, of course, had no more Continental soldiers to spare. General Washington still needed to guard against any actions from British forces at New York, Newport, or Quebec. There were native warriors running rampant in upstate New York and along the western frontier, and simply not enough soldiers to deal with all of those issues. Redeploying existing Continental forces to the south simply was not an option. The three South Carolinians, Lawrence, Draper, and Huger, all agreed with John Lawrence's proposal to raise a slave army because it might be the only realistic option. Putting the slaves under arms would reduce the risk of a domestic uprising. It was the only plausible source of men. So the committee recommended the scheme to Congress in late March of 1779. Based on the committee's proposal, Congress passed a resolution which read in part, quote, that it be recommended to the states of South Carolina and Georgia, if they shall think the same expedient, to take measures immediately for raising 3,000 able-bodied Negroes. Now, this resolution was pretty tentative. First, it was just a recommendation to the state governments. The Continental Congress was not mandating anything. It would be left up to the states to approve and enact this major policy change. Congress also left most of the details up to the states, other than noting that the troops would be commanded by white commissioned and non-commissioned officers. It did agree to compensate the owners up to $1,000 each for each slave fit for duty and guaranteed freedom and $50 to each former slave who completed the enlistment. The soldiers would not receive any pay during their enlistment, only food and clothing. Lawrence and Colonel Hamilton began writing to other influential and sympathetic officers to get more support for the plan. General Washington remained silent on the matter. With Congress's resolution, Lawrence traveled to Charleston to get the legislature on board. An army of 3,000 new recruits would more than double the Patriot force with General Lincoln in South Carolina. That, however, is where the project ended. The British already controlled Georgia, so there was no state legislature to vote on a resolution there. South Carolina voted on the proposal in late May. Both the House and Senate voted against it. As one correspondent put it, the legislatures, quote, received it with horror by the planters who figured to themselves horrible consequences. I can't find any specifics on the debate itself or even the numbers who opposed the plan, but it seems that it was pretty categorically rejected, 
at a time when South Carolina was approaching the greatest threat to its existence as an independent state. A few months later, a similar vote was described as receiving only a few dozen votes and, quote, blown up with contemptuous huzzas. Christopher Gadsden wrote, quote, We are much disgusted here at Congress recommending us to arm our slaves. It was received with great resentment as a very dangerous and impolitic step. For the elites who controlled South Carolina, the thought of giving guns and military training to 3,000 of their 100,000 or so slaves who outnumbered the white population was only inviting disaster. Those trained soldiers could later form the basis of a slave uprising, something the slave owners feared more than British rule. The only way arming slaves would work would be as part of a larger emancipation program that would end slavery in South Carolina. The views of Henry and John Lawrence aside, the bulk of the South Carolina leadership was nowhere near ready to end slavery in the state. In short, South Carolina would rather fail in its bid for independence than give up the practice of slavery. As Alexander Hamilton put it later, quote, prejudiced and private interests were antagonists too powerful for the public spirit and public good. Proposals to arm slaves in South Carolina would come up several more times during the war. Each time, the proposals met a similar fate. For many Americans, the revolution forced them to rethink their views on slavery. That evolution of thought, however, did not seem to take root in South Carolina. Next week, naval hero Gustavus Cunningham escapes the British, only to find himself in hot water with the Continental Congress. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Train Ants, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. As a publisher of historical books, Knox Press also makes some great children's fiction. They've got a new book releasing in a few weeks called Links to Liberty, Defending the Great Chain at West Point. 
If you know some younger readers, you may want to consider pre-ordering this one. I also want to thank Brenda Richmond for another generous contribution via PayPal. Anyone can make one-time contributions via PayPal, Venmo, or other ways. There are links and details on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. In last week's after show, I answered a question about slavery being a motivation for independence. I had forgotten that I was producing an episode this week also on slavery. I write down my main episodes weeks or months in advance and usually produce the after show just a few days before release. The two issues, though, tie in pretty well. I think what most people forget is just how uncontroversial slavery was prior to the adoption of Enlightenment ideals of equality and universal rights. Those are not ideals that we find much at all in the 17th century and earlier. We sometimes chastise the founders for bringing forth these Enlightenment ideals, but then not fully living up to them. I would argue that just making those ideals popular was a feat by itself. Now, in today's episode, we see how those ideas are beginning to change minds and influence a new generation, even if some places were not ready to give up their old institutions. Now, for political expediency, they put forward the idea to arm slaves as a war necessity, but clearly they had more idealistic motives in mind as well. I think this movement toward freedom and equality during the revolution sometimes gets lost because of the retrenchment against the idea that takes place in the early 19th century. We see a growing movement in the southern states in the decades following the war to double down on slavery as a legitimate institution. Since they don't want to walk away from the ideals of liberty and equality from the revolutionary era, they move in the direction of defining African Americans as not human and therefore undeserving of these rights. And while such racist ideas were not new to the 19th century, they do seem to take on a much stronger hold, where black people go from being maybe a little less capable than white people to being no better than animals or beasts of burden. Doing that seemed to be the only way to square intellectually the decision to expand rights and liberties to a more general population while still enslaving a whole section of them. It seems that laws and practices actually get worse for slaves in the 19th century than they were in earlier periods. That's why the abolitionist Frederick Douglass could later give his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? which is an indictment of the hypocrisy between the ideals of the revolution and the practice of slavery. As I've said many times, I don't think the revolution was fought either to preserve or end African slavery but the ideals of the revolution did eventually contribute to the abolitionist movement. Resistance to that movement in the South led to the divide that eventually led to the American Civil War. But to the idea that we should just dismiss the founders for not solving the slavery problem more quickly, I argue that they took us in the right direction, and it was really some of their descendants that ended up dropping the ball. I think that today, at least I hope, uh, slavery is universally accepted as being a bad thing. Now, that said, race relations remain controversial to this day because we are still dealing with a legacy of slavery. But what I'm trying to do is convey how people in the 18th century were really struggling with this changing idea. Racism at that time was not necessarily considered a bad thing. And slavery as an institution was going from being an uncontroversial norm to being something that was at least 
highly questioned by more and more people. The question that the founders seemed unable to resolve was how to move away from slavery without having it dividing the cause and creating chaos. I've listed a bunch of books in this week's blog episode that discuss the contributions of African Americans to the revolution. Those cover some really interesting stories, and I suggest you read them if you have the time. But what I'm really focusing on in my point here is how the elite white people in power were trying to change a system that, in a way, seemed to go against their own self-interest for the sake of being true to their new ideology. For that reason, my recommendation for a book this week is John Lawrence and the American Revolution by Gregory Massey. As someone from South Carolina, the heart of support for slavery, Lawrence represented a new way of thinking and tried to push his home state forward on this issue. And sadly, Lawrence would be killed later in the war. It would have been interesting to see if he could have grown into a Southern leader that really made some movement on this issue. Some have argued that Lawrence was pulled in this direction by his wartime friends, Hamilton and Lafayette. Both of those men became much more outspoken on abolition after the war. But although Hamilton never owned slaves personally, he did handle slaves as part of the Schuyler family property. Lafayette also attempted to purchase some slaves shortly after his arrival in America. So all of these young men were coming from an environment where slavery was perfectly acceptable and were developing the idea over time that it was not. How Lawrence might have evolved as a highly respected member of the South Carolina elite would have been interesting to see. In any event, his biography makes for some interesting readings, so check out Lawrence and the American Revolution. My online recommendation is a journal article by the same author, Gregory Massey, who is a university professor who has written extensively on this theme. He wrote an article entitled, The Limits of Anti-Slavery Thought in the Revolutionary Lower South, John Lawrence and Henry Lawrence, looking at why South Carolina rejected even wartime measures that might weaken the institution of slavery. The article is available on JSTOR, although you may need to sign up for a free registration to read it. I've included a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week comes from Pete Kratoff. He asks, You've mentioned General Howe's dog and Charles Lee's love of dogs, but I was wondering if the everyday soldiers ever had dogs in camp and or brought them into battle. Yes, Pete, I did mention in earlier episodes that George Washington had returned British General Howe's dog to him after the Battle of Germantown. And I've also mentioned that General Charles Lee went everywhere with a small pack of dogs around him. Dogs were very common parts of colonial families. George Washington maintained whole kennels of dogs that he kept for fox hunting. He also had personal companion dogs, including one called Sweet Lips, who accompanied him to Philadelphia in 1774. There are also stories of General von Steuben having dogs with him. John Adams wrote about his pet dogs at times. Some of you have seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. There's an appearance in that movie of two dogs named Mars and Jupiter, owned by a British commander. In fact, General Cornwallis had two Great Danes with those names during the war. Dog ownership during this era was not limited to elite families or generals. 
dogs were a common part of everyday life, not only as family companions, but also as 18th century burglar alarms to protect their families. Now, dogs are not always mentioned in records since the army really didn't provide any care for them. Sadly, some of the mentions that we do have come from situations where soldiers are starving to death and out of desperation end up eating their pets for survival. There are also, though, lost and found notices of soldiers trying to find their dogs. So yes, many soldiers did have dogs and dogs were part of the camp life in both armies. And of course, their dogs sometimes did follow their masters into battle. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me or contact me on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media, and I'll try my best to answer. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. Si eras de los que tenían todos los álbumes familiares en la sala o de los que guardaban toda la música en CDs, eras un genio y no lo sabías. Con Lenovo lleva tu ingenio a otro nivel, porque con nuestra familia de computadores IdeaPad, todos tus archivos multimedia tienen el rendimiento y potencia que necesitas. Encuéntranos en los principales almacenes de cadena del país. 